0: Verse 21. This morning we're going to be in Mark 2, starting in verse 21. And the last time we saw that Jesus had two self-portrayals of the physician, we call the great physician, obviously, because he does more than the average doctor or surgeon. He goes right for the spiritual issues and helps to heal us from that disease of sin because he took that penalty on the cross. Uh, He also looks at himself as the bridegroom. We talked a lot about that. Uh, In this morning's message, you're going to see really Jesus kind of take a wide-angle lens and focus less about him personally, but more about the ministry that he came to bring. Uh, We're going to listen, we're going to hear about the different examples, illustrations about the garment and the wineskins, and really what the symbolism means uh, I'm going to be a little repetitive today because I know many over the years have had difficulty with this portion of scripture really grasping it. But basically, you know, this is, this is what he's doing. He's, um, he's helping us to understand the new dispensation of grace, the church age. For us, it's easy. We've had 2,000 years of this. You can go on the internet, find any great pastor and hear his teachings on any portion of the scripture. But remember... When Jesus came, God was doing something new, and even his followers had difficulty understanding, so he really had to help them to grasp what was going on. However, we'll find as we go through the end of this chapter that the religious establishment, remember, they were established. It was less about God anymore and more about how we do things, the way of doing things, their position in society. So they had difficulty letting that go. And we're going to see the forces align against Jesus from this portion all the way to the cross as we go through this gospel. But, you know, even today, there's some that, that God is doing a new work, and they don't want to let go of the past. Or they say, well, my, my way is the right way. My way is the best way. It kind of reminds me of the three clergymen who, the priest, the pastor, and the rabbi who got together, and, you know, they were all talking about how their way is the best, and if they spent enough time with anybody, they could convert anybody. So one of them has the idea that, well, let's make it a little bit more challenging. How about let's go into the woods and find the wild animal, a bear per se, and see if you can convert him. So all three are up for the challenge. Well, the priest goes first, and he goes out into the woods for a while, and later the other two catch up with him, and he's got an arm sling, and he's all scratched up, and you know he's bleeding everywhere. And they say, well, how did it go? He goes, well, you know, I went out there, and I found a bear. I started reading the catechism. And Bear wasn't having it. He resisted. So I went up and I started sprinkling holy water on him and you know I try to do mass and I'm trying to focus his attention and you know by the end of the, the, the meeting with the bear he I believe he was a converted bear. We, I did my job. Okay, so it's now the pastor's turn. So the pastor goes out into the woods and a few hours later the priest and the rabbi come to meet the pastor and he's now in a wheelchair. He's got an IV drip. He looks worse than the priest. And the other two said, well, what happened? So the pastor goes, well, you know, I found a bear. And uh, I started preaching fire and brimstone. And he wasn't having any of it. And he started walking away from me and going towards the water. So I followed him. And, you know, we Protestants, we do full immersion. All right? So I wrestled with that bear. I got him underwater, water. And he came up, and he was a new bear. I converted him. We were eating honey together, reading the Gospel of John, and everything was great. OK, so you know, the rabbi's a little nervous, seeing what's happened to his other two friends, and the rabbi goes out into the woods, and later on that evening, the, the priest and the pastor, they get a phone call from the hospital. Uh, your friend here is in the hospital, so they, they go, they meet the rabbi, the rabbi's full body cast. You know he's got his leg up in a, in a pulley system, and there's only a spot for a space where he can talk, and the other two say to him, "Well, what happened?" He goes, "Well, I found the bear." He goes, but looking back on second thought, I'm not so sure I should have started with circumcision. <laughs> if you really hate that, I will throw my pastor friend under the bus. Who knows good? Who told me that? <laughs> All right, let's get serious now. <laughs> Verse 21. Jesus says, "No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment." or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. So this is the parable of the garment and the patch. Well, we're going to start with first the physical and then move to the spiritual. Now, Jesus would often walk around and do teachings based on observable things. It was a very simple culture back then without all the technology that we have. So you could see these things in action every day. So Pastor Joe... Is going to bring his laundry in this morning for show-and-tell these (laughs) are one of my favorite jeans as you can see they're so they're so soft you know they've been washed so long and and I've got a hole in my jeans and I pretty much wear these jeans until the hole goes all the way around and then the leg falls off you know but these jeans have served me well for years my wife tells me I don't throw anything away and, you know, when I was younger, I used to get a rip or a hole. And, you know, in those days, you'd put a patch on it. But because the, the material is so soft from being worn so much, if you have a, a new piece of fabric and you put it on and cover the hole, uh, when you now start, the new piece goes through its uh, contracting and expanding uh, cycles. What happens is, and I've seen this happen, it actually pulls from the old portion. And now you have a whole bunch of holes around the patch. So Jesus, it was so... He, such. He's the son of God. He was so clever. He's such a genius. He just would take these observable things, and they would go, Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Now, in a spiritual sense, similar to my favorite genes, the old covenant lived out its usefulness. It was an awesome thing. It served an awesome purpose. It was around for a very long time. But eventually, God was going to do a new thing. And basically, the understanding here is that the old covenant, the old garment, could not continue with the new thing that God was going to do. They could not exist side by side. It just was not possible. See, the religious leaders wanted Jesus to come over to him. They, they probably, in their hearts, really respected him. They saw the miracles that he did. But they felt that they wanted a place in this new thing that was going on. And it wasn't fair. You know, They were trying to hold on to the old system. And you know what? Compromise is often good. But at times, compromise can be bad. Even today, the world is looking for a hybrid faith. And when you, as a Christian, are asked about your faith, you're asked about the way to heaven, and you won't compromise. But all these other religions will say, come on, why are you guys so difficult? You know, we can all get to heaven. We can all submit our ways and... And, and, you know, every road leads to God. And we say, no, not according to Christ. He was exclusive, although he was all-inclusive. And that's the paradox about the gospel. Everyone's invited, but it's an exclusive way. So they wanted a hybrid faith. Now, check this out. We're going to find out later. um, Actually, if you go through the book of Revelation, in our future, 2014, uh, that there will be an antichrist will come on the scene. And he will actually use this hybrid faith, this ecumenic movement, where everybody's kind of getting along, and he will use that as a powerful tool to achieve his goals. Because if you can control religion, many times you can control countless number of people. Even Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the people. And his phrase was a lot longer than that, but everyone focuses on that. And he did say that, and that's true. But Christ came to free us. He came to give us something different. He came to give us a relationship with God. He came to fill us with the Holy Spirit. You can't barter it. You can't buy it. I mean, it's just an awesome thing. Sadly enough, today, religious men do this as well. They try to find a way where they can capitalize on this. I heard um, a teaching from a preacher in New Jersey, and if I didn't hear it with my own ears, I wouldn't have believed it. His teaching started out good, and then he said, I've got the Holy Spirit. I'm going to release the Holy Spirit. Really? You really think you have that much power? The only thing I could think of was like a cat carrier where you open it up and the animal comes out, and obviously that's not going to be applicable in the Holy Spirit. You can't contain the Holy Spirit. God seals us with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit gives gifts as He wills, but not as man wills. Jesus, though, said, I did not come to destroy the law of Moses, but I came to fulfill it. Well, how, did, how does he fulfill it? You see, here's the impasse. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God is a God of justice. It doesn't make him... You know, people have this misconception that God, the Father in the Old Testament, was mean. No, he, he was a God of justice. What's wrong with justice? When we look on TV and, and somebody hurts a child and they get away with it on a technicality, don't we get mad? We have a sense of justice, too. Normally, though, we have a sense of justice for other people, but not ourselves. We don't want to face justice. We want all those people on TV to face justice. So God, he he was a God of justice. He gave the law. The law showed us that we were imperfect. And there was an impasse because sinful man couldn't be in the presence of a holy God. So Jesus came, and he said, I'm going to satisfy both parties, Father, Father. I will make sure that your justice is satisfied, and mankind, I will make sure that you have the opportunity to be, have a relationship with the Father. So this is what I'm going to do. Jesus took that justice. He took the law. He, he was condemned on that tree for all of our sins, right? So people say, well, it's oversimplification. All I have to do is believe in Jesus, that he died for my sins, and I'm saved. Yes, it's not an oversimplification. It's actually very complex, But Jesus made it easy for us. So what mankind gets is we get the mercy. So we don't have to face justice. We get the grace and the love of God, even though we've sinned and offended him. And even as believers, we still sin and offend him. And Christ still died for those sins, our future sins. So it's a beautiful thing how Jesus didn't eradicate the law of Moses. He fulfilled it. He made it beautiful. And it's kind of funny. Religion's a funny thing where religious men, they get together and they have these ideas. And does anybody check with God? Right? All the, imagine how many religions are on this planet. There's got to be tens of thousands of them. You know, many of them are cults. And what happens? Man tells God, well, we're going to get together here. We're all going to decide what we want to do, and then we're going to present it to you, and you're going to like it. That's what religion is. But Christ came down from heaven, the only one who came down from heaven and actually reached to us and said, here, I'm going to join the two of you together, God's way. But it's going to be palatable for you as well. Religion's really not fair because everybody gets to heaven in a different way. doesn't make sense. Verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. So this is the illustration of the wineskins. Now this is very similar to the garment, but it has some different nuances. In those days, um, believe it or not, Well, people would use different animal parts for different things, and and bladders, animal bladders, you know, they really used all the animal, they used the skin, the meat, the bones, the bladders, the innards, the whole, you know, very efficient system, today we're like, it's kind of gross in our society, but people back then used everything, you know, they used the bladders, they would fill it up with water, actually they'd play ball with the bladders, so let's go to the (laughs) wineskins, that's why I have notes, to keep me focused, you know. So what they would do is <laughs> they would <laughs> sorry they would take the animal wineskins, sew them together, and they would fill them up with liquids. They'd make them real tight and the liquids would help to actually expand some of the skins so that there would be a lot less leakage. And they would actually carry these skins and they would have no problem with losing the fluid. But the new wineskins, because of the fermentation process of the wines, had to be pliable and skin is pliable. Our skin's pliable. Think about to your intestines. You know, you ever eat something that doesn't agree with you and you kind of get, you see, you're, you're bloating. If our intestines didn't expand, we'd probably explode. None of us would be here by now. So the wineskins were very important for the expansion of gases to accommodate this expansion and contraction of the fermentation process. However, over time, the skins would lose their elasticity and become brittle. You could still hold the old wine because it was done fermenting. However, if you put new wine in old wineskins, the old unpliable skins could not accommodate and they would start to split. And the, not only would the skins be ruined, but the wine would be spilled out all over the place. So Jesus takes such a simple thing and makes a spiritual illustration out of it. Now, when we look at this in a spiritual sense, you can't force the new, what God was doing new, into the old. It just would not work. What God was doing in the New was so dynamic. The Holy Spirit, it was, it was so you know, expansive and contraction. I mean, who can follow the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit gives gifts as He wills, whenever He wants, and, and he, he directs us what to do. That's exciting, but the old skins could not hold that dynamic uh, understanding of the New Covenant. Now, I would say that the skins, the nuance in the skins versus the garment was that it did account for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is looked at in the Old Testament, oil was a symbol or a type of the Holy Spirit. You can see the Holy Spirit's work in some of the anointing and things to that nature. Also, some look at the wine as the Holy Spirit. All right? who, who, can, who, again, who can follow what the Holy Spirit is doing? We just have to kind of you know, roll with the punches, so to speak. But what happened was the old skins used up their usefulness in God's economy. God was done with the old system. Now, I say that in God's economy. I'm not, again, I'm not saying it, the scripture's saying it, I agree with the scripture, but God gets to determine when a dispensation has come or gone. When something that he has put forth is done with and he's going to move something new into that, into that space. This isn't a competition between those of us in the new covenant and those still following the old covenant. It's not a competition. But what I am saying is if you look at Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one, about 600 years B.C., The Hebrew, you know, no Jewish person can refute that Jeremiah was a a revered Jewish prophet, Hebrew prophet. He says right in verse 31, 31, he says, behold, and he's speaking, God is speaking through him. He says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And he goes on, it's going to be a different covenant. So God himself says in the old covenant, check this out. Don't get really used to this, because I'm going to do something new. It's going to be better, and it's going to be exciting. So keep your eyes open when God does it. Does that make sense? Okay. If we we look at this as well and take it to its logical conclusion, God is also going to do a new thing in our time. Now, we may get used to this covenant or this dispensation. However, it's very clear that when God comes back, you know, after the, the rapture, after the marriage supper of the lamb, after he comes back, there's going to be a new kingdom where God will rule directly. And I have to say, brothers and sisters, for, thus, for those of us in the new covenant and in this dispensation of grace the church age, we're going to have to also roll with the new thing that God is doing. And maybe some of us are real comfortable right now. Maybe our jobs, maybe our relationships, maybe a lot of things. But we can be like those people in the old covenant that are still stuck and refuse to move and we can be the same way because things are going really good for me right now not now lord i don't want to be raptured and i've had heart to hearts with some believers who have that mentality well i hope this happens before the lord comes back well i hope that happens so brothers and sisters we can also get stuck as those in the old covenant got stuck we have to be open to what god wants to do in our lives and it'll be better than anything we could ever imagine amen I want to read Luke 5:38 to 39, two verses. Again, putting all the scripture together, what does John say? What are the nuances in John and Matthew and Luke as we go through Mark? So Luke 5, 38, Jesus says, but new wine must be put into new wineskins and both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. So you can't mix the two. Each one had its own purpose. Once the fulfilling agent, which is Christ, has done the fulfilling, you can't expect the thing that's fulfilled to bear any elements of its originality. I think about concrete. You know, when you put a bunch of stuff together, the cement and the rocks, and you mix it with water and you let it cure and you you build something or a slab. When it's done curing, it doesn't bear any resemblance to those old elements. When you break it in half, it's a monolith. As you look at it as a cross-section, it's a monolith, it's uniform, because it's now something new, it's been fulfilled, you can't go back. Right? So I'm just kind of hitting this from a lot of angles. Now, there's two good examples of this. Um, I talk to a lot of Jewish preachers, we've actually had Peter from the Christian Jewish Foundation come out here, and uh, he preached a few times over the years, and when I sat with him, he told me that he's fighting a fight within his movement the Messianic movement where Jewish believers have become Judaizers. We, we saw this in the book of Acts, didn't we, 2,000 years ago? Well, if you are a Jewish person and you want to believe in the Messiah or you're a Gentile, you have to go back to Judaism before you can make the step towards Christianity. That's not so. They covered this in the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts. So what they're trying to do is, again, they're trying to go back to those initial elements that have already been fulfilled. Another example would be, Christians who are legalists, largely Gentile Christians who are legalists and try to mix grace with the works of the law. And i got to tell you, that's, that's a, a harsh tutor. If you've ever been discipled by somebody who's a Christian legalist, it's cold, it's rigid, it's harsh. You don't, there's no movement of the spirit. It's follow these rules. You know? and, and it's those who have come out of that type of discipleship kind of need... You know, a little therapy, because they're being forced to do things in legalism that they weren't meant to do. Okay, so those are two examples. Verse 39, where he says, no one who has had the old wine immediately says, oh, the new is better. I love the fact that God doesn't paint a rosy picture in his scriptures. And many of us have seen this, that God says, I have something new. I have a positive change for you. And there are many who are still stuck in their old ways. So let's even go out of the old covenant. Let's just go into old versus new. I mean, you know, some some even in addictions, and it's not always substance abuse, it could be many other things. They they're still drinking the old wine. And God says, I got new wine here, you can be a new person. You know, I can I can forgive you and also free you of that bondage, no. I'm still drinking my old wine. Let me taste that new stuff. Ooh, this is good. But, you know, I'm, I've been drinking this old wine for so long. No thanks. I don't want the new. But God wants to do something new in your life. God wants to free you. God wants to, to give you purpose. You know, God wants to. All these things, all these promises, and people still, they're still sipping on the old wine. Ministries can be like that too. Always looking back to the glory days. What was God doing 40, 50 years ago? The revival 60 years ago. And they're still stuck in the old system. Some are still stuck in denominationalism. Hey, God may change Calvary Chapel. God may start something new where, where we're kind of in the old thing. And we better, we better get with the program. And I'm willing to do that. So it isn't about Calvary Chapel. It isn't about denomination. It's about what God is doing. Understand? And we have to follow what he's doing. Now we can't have an old-skinned mentality. Now, right around this time, just to kind of pan out a little bit from what we're looking at, if we look at the Bible chronologically, right about this time was right around John 5. Two things happened. Number one, Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. And number two, Jesus revealed himself to the world, about his relationship to the Father. He started to reveal his deity. So these are the things going on as we look at the scripture, we look at all four gospels. The religious leaders did not even open up their heart to see the change. They just couldn't accept it for many reasons. They were, it, was, it was being blocked. Satan had snatched the seed that was planted in their heart and took it away and gave them all the excuses why Jesus wasn't good and why they should get rid of him. I want to say this to you this morning. God's Word is is powerful. It's dynamic. If you're right now, maybe you haven't been exposed to the Word, and right now you're, you're listening, you're reading, and part of you is saying, wow, this is interesting. I like this. And part of you is saying, this is stupid. I'm only here because somebody brought me here. You know, this is nonsense. I don't believe in this. You know, I'm an atheist. I'm this. If you're having any of those conflicting thoughts, you've got to that means that God's working in your heart. If you just sat here and say, this is the dumbest thing I've ever been to, Uh, none of this makes any sense to me, I'm just going to go back to my old ways, then you're probably spiritually dead inside. But if you're having a little bit of a thing going on inside of you, God is trying to reach you. He's trying to let that seed of the gospel start to flower and take root and bear fruit. Don't fight what he's doing in your heart. It isn't about what I'm saying. What I'm saying means nothing. It's about what the word says. Understand? So don't fight that. Verse 23, going back to Mark 2, the last few verses before we close for the the morning. It says, Now it happened when he, meaning Jesus, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. As they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. This is a controversy over the Sabbath. And 2,000 years later today, there's still many um, schisms, even in Judaism, that are so overfocused on the Sabbath. And we're going to talk about that. God gave the children of Israel the Sabbath after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They worked and worked, and some of them died in the field. They just worked until they couldn't work anymore. So this was refreshing, that God was actually in his law saying, I want you guys to rest. Right? So this happened in Exodus 20. And he had a few rules to follow. Very simple. Number one, keep the Sabbath holy, sanctify it, keep it different from the rest of the week. There's some things that I want you to do and learn and, and experience during the Sabbath. Two, remember God. Three, rest on the seventh day as God rested on the seventh day from creation. And four, not to be distracted with work or the busyness of life. Don't do work. Don't do business. It's it's not legal on the Sabbath. So this was good for the people in many ways, and you know what, today it's still good for us. We're not bound under that old covenant, it was for the children of Israel. However, you know, all God's ways make sense. Do not murder is still a good thing. Don't lie is still a good thing. You know, rest, don't work yourself to death seven days a week is still a good thing. The problem comes in when man tries to overanalyze what God says, which religions often do. According to Deuteronomy 23, 24 through 25, if you pass through your neighbor's crop, which the disciples did, as, as you would go, you know, today there's buildings and factories and all kinds of stuff today, power plants, back then mostly farms. So the disciples, if they were going to a certain place, might cut through a farm. And the law said that you could actually pluck, if you're hungry, pluck the, you know, the grain heads and pop it in your mouth and, and eat it. It's amazing how God works. There's only two things he, he prohibited. Number one, don't put a sickle to it. You know, Don't go to your neighbor's crop and just take all the stuff and then you know, walk out over your shoulder with it. Number two, don't gather it. That's all. Luke tells us in Luke's gospel that not only were they picking the heads of grain, but they were rubbing it with their hands. Most likely, if you've ever done this in, with wheat and su- such or certain grains, if you rub it, the um, inedible part is separated from the edible part. So I guess you could make a case for miniature threshing. And then the other stuff would blow away and you just pop in your mouth. I remember listening to Chuck Smith and he said when they were kids, they used to do this and they would just chew it. It was like a gum and then eventually they'd swallow it. It would satisfy their hunger a little bit. I went on a website, it's actually myjewishlearning.com, very interesting. And what it says is that in the Mishnah, the rabbis, even today, still followed, they enumerated 39 categories and hundreds of subcategories just for prohibitions on the Sabbath. Wow. So what happens is, it doesn't have to be rabbis, it could be Christian theologians. We can do the same thing. I'm not picking on anybody. We can overanalyze what God says, the simplicity of the word. We talked last Sunday about an instance where I talked to you about a famous pastor who's online and stuff, who took salvation and made it very difficult. Right? Amen to that? So God says, listen, God reaches the overeducated people. He also reaches the, the average and simple folk. And both of us can follow the same word that he says because he makes it easy for us. He doesn't make it difficult. So when you're on the Sabbath, you know, if you're a part of one of these uh, schisms, you don't know what you can do. You kind of just want to sit still and not move and... I don't know, look at my watch and see, is it 24 hours? Oh, maybe I looked at my watch, I broke a sweat. That might be illegal, I don't know. But this is what Jesus does. He answers their charge. He goes back to 1 Samuel 21, and we covered this on Wednesdays. When David and his men were on the run, they were hungry. They ended up in Jerusalem, they were in Jerusalem. Uh, He finds the priest, and he says, we're starving. We haven't eaten in a long time. Is there any food? And the priest says, well, there's some showbread, which if you go back into the law, um, it was baked every day, and it was only lawful for the priest to eat. And he says, you know, the priest asked David, well, if your men have, have they kept pure sexually? He asked a few things. He says, you know what, go eat the bread. So David and his men were preserved from hunger and death because they ate the the showbread, which was not lawful to eat by anybody but the priest. So in a sense, they broke the ceremonial law. However... The Lagos, Jesus Christ, was saying that human preservation is, it takes a higher precedence than ceremonial law. So, listen, we see this today, and I, I love this example because I love science and aeronautics and stuff. And You know, gravity's gravity is if gravity. If I try to walk over here, I'm either going to fall down the steps or whatever because it's, it's constantly pulling us down. It's keeping you in those seats. Gravity, was it, 9, 9.8, 9.8 meters per second squared? It's, it's a certain rate of gravity. Now, then we say, well, how come there's planes and birds flying up in the sky? Well, there's another law, and that's called Bernoulli's Principle. Very neat. It basically has to do with uh, 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 airspeed over an airfoil, and the higher the velocity, the less the atmospheric pressure. So when that air, the the airfoils, the wings are built, and it's amazing. We had to learn from the birds because God made the birds, and they can fly. So basically, there's a certain design on the, on the wing of an airplane, and there's all these mathematical engineering calculations that are done. But the, the long and the short of it is, there's got to be enough velocity over the top of that, that wing, and what that does is it decreases the atmospheric pressure, and then what we have is called... Lift. Awesome. Lift. <laughs> Some of my science students. And then the wings, magically, when the airspeed is high enough, defy gravity. And as you look at the plane, they can be flying all day long until that airspeed drops and you have normal atmospheric pressure and the plane starts to go down. So it really is dependent on the velocity of the air over the wing. Bottom line is that while Bernoulli's principle is in action, gravity is still in action, but Bernoulli's principle overcomes gravity. So in this instance, we have God's laws. They make a lot of sense, but sometimes two of his laws come into conflict. What do we do? Well, which one has the higher... Um, purpose. The one is to preserve life over a ceremonial law. So Jesus, he gets them thinking, and he says, "This have you not read?" Now he's speaking to the elite of the elite of the religious establishment. Do you think that Jesus tried to tweak these guys every once in a while? I do, <laughs> and I don't think he did it in a mean way. But I think what he was trying to do is be a little confrontational to stimulate their brains and think. Maybe our way is not the right way. Maybe God is trying to do something new. He has a point, but they wouldn't admit it. Nicodemus even came to Jesus at night, the great religious leader in John chapter 3, right? Because he didn't want his buddies to know that he was asking Jesus questions. Acts 6-7, even after many years of the priests and the religious system hearing, many priests had actually jumped over and came to the faith. So these guys weren't all the bad guys. Jesus loved them too and wanted them to change, just like he wants us to change. But the disciples didn't even violate a law of God. They violated one of a man-made tradition. I want to say this to you and put this out there. I know for me, I was in religion when I was young, and there were so many rules. Well, there was the Bible, and then there were these other books that religion gives out, whether it's the Book of Order or the Catechism or the Guidebook or the Rule Book. And, you know, as grown up as a kid, it just confused me. It wasn't simple to me. So eventually I just went my way. My way was not a good way. I lived like the world did because I couldn't do it. I gave up. And maybe you've been there. I want to I say this to you. If there's anything you don't understand about what we do in this church, please ask. Ask me. Why do we, why do we baptize people? I had a, um, a young boy uh, ask me a few Sundays ago in my office about baptism. I sat with What a cute kid. He was so like a... Like he just sat there as real dressed like a little man and he sat across me and I explained all the reasons why we do baptism. And I basically said, it's your choice and he's going to choose to get baptized. So if, you, if there's something you don't understand, please ask, please, I'm not going to look at it as disrespectful. I don't want the same thing to ha- that happened to me or many other people who get lost in the world because religion scares the heck out of them. I don't want that to happen to anybody here. So. You know, some things we just do. Maybe some things we can look at and say, well, maybe we shouldn't do that. Or maybe it's really not, it has a firm basis in Scripture. But ask. A few more verses, and then we're going we're gonna to finish up. Matthew 12, Jesus, again, Matthew records more of what Jesus says, and you can see some overlap here. Matthew 12, 5 through 8. Jesus says, have you not read in the law that the... That on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Whoa, how can that be? We're going to talk about that. But I say to you, in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Two points to take away from this. So you're telling me now that the most religious, spiritual men, the priests, profane the Sabbath, and then God just ignores it. What he's saying is that on the Sabbath, even the priests have to do some things. And the things that they have to do is for the good of the nation. So at times, again, the two laws that we talked about, the priest relaxing on the Sabbath, and they had a a rotation in what they did in their uh, religious duties or the spiritual duties. But there were times where the priest would actually have to do something on the Sabbath. Because that was for the good of the entire nation versus them just resting that day. God is a fair God. God makes sense. He doesn't throw all these things at us and we we can't understand them. Again, he was trying to get the religious leaders to think about what they were saying. And the last thing before we close is, and I covered a lot of this, so I'm not going to go over it, but Jesus said he is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath means rest. If we go back to Genesis, remember the worldwide flood and the chaos that ensued and, and a lot of people drowned and it was a horrible thing. Noah built the ark and preserved people through this calamity. Do you know the word Noah in Hebrew is noach, which means rest. So Noah's name meant rest. The people rested literally and physically from the calamity of the flood. Okay, now let's fast forward. Jesus is the Lord of the rest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He was the original lawgiver. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they made the law. What Jesus wants us to do in Matthew 11, I love this. This is such a, a comforting scripture. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, and he, this is for everybody in this room and everybody in the world Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor, all you who work and are heavy laden, burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. Even the word sounds nice, rest. Oh, just to rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus wants us to rest spiritually and mentally. He doesn't want us to work our way to heaven because we can't anyway. He doesn't want us to stress He makes it easy for us to come, but we have to believe. Now, for some, that's difficult. Ah, just faith, you know. Remember, faith starts out really small. I remember as a new believer... I had, I had friends who were, to me, spiritual giants, and I thought, I'm never going to be like them. They have so much faith. I, can't, I just can't trust God for this, and I can't trust... And you know what? Over time, that faith started to grow and, and bear fruit in my life. I'm like, oh, this is great. And now my wife and I find ourselves discipling other people. And we never thought... And listen, another 20 years, we'll be different than we are now. That's just the way it is. It's a journey. But it's that little faith that starts out small and starts to grow... And, and, and make a beautiful crop, and fruit, spiritual fruit comes off of that. So Jesus, when, when God made the law, it wasn't supposed to be burdensome. Like he said, the Sabbath was made, made for man. You guys are acting as if man has to burden himself to please this Sabbath, this inanimate object. You guys have it backwards. So Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. God did a new work when he sent his son into the world, and certainly he shook things up. And eventually he died on the cross. Some of us here this morning, God also wants to do a new work. We might be holding on to old garments, old wineskins, sipping on old wine, and God wants to give us something new. You know, we're just, we're just caught. We're just stuck in a rut. Like when I pulled up in front of the church and my car got stuck in the snow, I thought it was firmer than it was, so I've got a problem after service. But the bottom line is that... <laughs> God wants to do a new work in our lives as well. He doesn't want us to get stuck in a rut. If you don't know the Lord, Jesus Christ wants a relationship with you. He wants to bring your hand together with God's hand. And he wants to be the mediator. And it doesn't cost you anything. And you don't even have to be a part of this church. You don't even have to ever come back. But you need a relationship with God. And the only way that's going to happen is through Jesus Christ. If you're in a religion and you really don't understand what they're teaching, God wants to free you from that. He wants you to taste the new wine. In general, God made his word and his laws not to constrain us and put us in bondage, but to free us from the bondage of our own sin. God wants to fill our hearts with new wine, with his counselor, with his Holy Spirit. And unlike the pastor that I spoke about before, I don't have the Holy Spirit. I don't have him locked away somewhere. He is free. But I can tell you where to find him. And when you become a believer, he seals, he's sealed in you forever. He's with you the whole time. The question is, do you wanna find him? That might necessitate change, a a change of thinking. Uncharted waters, nobody likes change. I'm still holding on to, I'm still holding on to, let me a second, all my friends laugh at me. You see this thing? This is a dinosaur. It doesn't even charge right anymore. We become creatures of habit. We, we hold on to things, and we don't even know why we're holding on to it. It doesn't, But it's just comfortable to us, like these, these jeans that I showed you. But I want to encourage you that God is not like a phone or jeans. God is something so much greater. And, and I would just give you the opportunity, as we close, to put aside the old wine and to taste of the new. Let's pray.